Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Jenna Kelly as she explores the lasting psychological and emotional bonds between individuals. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network and join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. Hey there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and we are so grateful for your continued support and love of this podcast and these interviews, and would be so thankful if you could keep showing us that love through subscribing, following, wherever you consume your podcasts, and if you could even take it up another level and leave us a rating as well as a comment, because those things help get this, these interviews out more into the heads and the hearts of people that need to hear them. And so that's why I'm so excited to share this next conversation with you, where I sit down with author and psychotherapist, Chris Bruno, who he's the founder of Restory Counseling, which focuses more on men's issues such as trauma and abuse and fatherhood, and also the founder of the Restoration Project, which is a nonprofit that is dedicated dedicated to really providing a lot of cool experiential activities to strengthen the father-child attachment. And so he's like going out into nature and backpacking and hiking, and then also really inviting fathers to come into more of this vulnerability, tender side of themselves as well. And he talks about fatherhood in this way of this fatherly energy. And so it's broader than just gender, but tapping into the mother and fatherly energy and the inner work that he's had to do um, and how he shows up for his own children. And you can just hear that this is his life's work. It just comes out as he, he's so easy to listen to. And he's got a lot of cool offerings. He's the author of three books, his most recent book, Becoming a Sage. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. Um, But just want you to sit back and enjoy listening to the topic of attachment in the context of fatherhood. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Well, hello, Chris. I am so looking forward to being in conversation with you today. So welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it is my pleasure. So great to be here with you today. Thank you. Yes. So as you know, because I've heard you talk about this in your own work, in your own journey, it all starts by going back. And I would love for you to share an important attachment memory that comes up for you when you think about the work that you're doing, why you do the work that you do. If you could please share with us. Mm-hmm. So I grew up here in Colorado and uh, my parents uh, would often uh, attempt to go into the outdoors. It didn't often work well, uh, but for a variety of reasons, because uh, I grew up with a pretty severely mentally and physically disabled sister. 
And so she would not do well out in the wilderness uh, often. However, they tried. And so my, my dad bought one of those campers that fits in the back of a bed, the bed of a truck. And that was the most contained safe space for us as a family to go. And I remember uh, it's so small, right? And you were a family of four. And I remember where uh, in the evenings, I don't know where my dad would go, uh, but in the evenings as my mom was attempting to put us to bed, and that was a huge long process uh, with my sister. I was able to, like, I got the bed that folded out of the wall, like hung kind of from the ceiling. And uh, and then they put a net there so I wouldn't fall off the bed onto the floor. But I remember my mom would uh, tell me the story of Rumpelstiltskin. Mm-hmm. And she would uh, tell both of us, but she was very much focused on on telling it to me. And it was, I think it was like the only story that she told as a bedtime story when we were in the camper. And I remember her just like the cadence of her words and the, and the, and the regularity, the rhythm of, you know, I knew exactly what the next sentence was going to be mm-hmm. and the sweetness of like, I'm, I'm above the, you know, the table, if you will, in a camper. And so in order for her to have any kind of, you know, space for her to see me, she had to stand which then put her face right next to mine as she was, as she was telling the story. Uh, and I remember just looking, you know, I'd lay on my side and I, I remember looking at her in the face as she would tell this story. And I remember how safe and how seen and how comforted I felt that I knew what was going to happen, that there was that consistency of her and then the availability of her face to me just brought such a sense of, of comfort and containment to me in this otherwise, this otherwise family that had a lot of chaos in it because of what was happening for my sister growing up. Uh, and, uh, and I just remember that those moments being really, really sweet. I've done a lot of work since then to think like, why was it Rumpelstiltskin? And what was it about this, <laughs> this actual fairy tale that she wanted, you know, was it, was it something she was trying to tell me, uh, consciously, unconsciously, like what was it she was trying to say? Um, but I just remember those moments were so, so sweet for me. Mm. Yes. That's a beautiful story. There's so much there, you know, in terms of just the physical containment, the, the co-regulation with your mom in those moments. And I know we're going to be talking a lot about fatherhood too. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, just based on, your stories, where, where does your father, how does he come up in some of these memories? And yeah, I think this memory that I've just shared is, is where he shows up and that he's not showing up. Mm. Uh, So I would, I would say that I had uh, and have uh, a secure attachment with my mom uh, but because of his absence and, and he was around, he was there, he provided for us. Uh, you know, my mom, because of my sister's disabilities, uh, she left her job and stayed home as the primary caregiver to my sister. And then I came along five years later. And so, she, so I was a part of that caregiving aspect of things. So I had a pretty, pretty secure attachment with my mom, but my dad just wasn't present. There was not the availability uh, of him around as much. Uh, and then I think there's some other cultural things, some other, uh, just what it meant to be a father in, in that era, uh, that played into, into it. But I would say I have far more of that disconnected avoidant, 
uh, attachment with him. It was just, he's his own person. I might, I, it, we honor and respect each other, uh, mm-hmm. but we actually don't have, uh, have a secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that as well. And I so wonder how that's informed, you know, your approach to fatherhood. And, and so how do you think about attachment in the context of fatherhood? Oh yeah. Well, it, it is 100% informed, uh, some of the work that I do in the realm of fatherhood and fathering, uh, I think for me, one of the big things has been uh, when I became a father, uh, there was a determination in my life that that uh, I looked into the face of my my son, who was my oldest. I looked into his face, literally holding him in the hospital room moments after his birth and uh, and kind of making a commitment to myself and to him that kind of from henceforth what fatherhood means in my life and in his life and in our family legacy is going to change. Um, and it wasn't in like a, a proverbial kind of reaction, like, well, screw you, dad. Like I'm going to change. No, it wasn't in, there wasn't any of that energy. It was just like, I know what I longed for from him. And I know that I want to provide that for my son. Uh, and then for my daughters that, you know, came later. So that really formed my, my personal quest in what will it look like for me to be an intentional and present and available and consistent father uh, for my children, which then developed into also the the work that I now do. I I wasn't a therapist now, now I am a therapist, or I wasn't a therapist then, now I am a therapist. And, uh, And just like, the work that I do with people, the work that I do in our uh, in our organization, uh, and all that, so that dads have the opportunity, and then also the guidance and the training and the the uh, orientation to what does it look like for us to to be part of the attachment uh, space with our children. Uh, so that's very much informed <laughs> what what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're focusing on that. I think there's such a need and a gap in our understanding of attachment. You know, I think it's safe to say that most of the attachment research has been disproportionately focused on mothers and, you know, caregiving behaviors of mothers. And I think what we do know about dads is probably what you're discovering in your your own fatherhood journey and, and in the work that you're doing. But the research that is out there, I mean, shows how important fathers are in the lives of, of children's healthy development. And that there's also different differences in the way mothers and fathers interact. And I don't know if that's more culturally conditioned or just kind of innate. Um, but what have you found are some of the differences that, you know, a father's role is compared to a mother's role and in, in especially in developing those secure attachments? Yeah, what a great question. So I, I think I'd like to start with this, that when I talk about fathers and mothers, where I come from in that is it's far more the fathering energy and the mothering energy that I think all of us, all humans have both. That there is, you know, just the the fact that, you know, just that sense of like each one of us brings that energy to it and and which one is kind of in front and mm-hmm. which one is more primary is going to be where we want to kind of focus what is primary for you and what is primary for uh, your partner and what would that look like for the two of you to bring both of those energies forth 
I do think what you're saying is, yeah, the research attachment theory has focused far more on mother energy than mm-hmm. it has that father energy. Uh, and I, I think that's really good. And I think that's really good. I know within me that my children uh, and my community and my clients need sometimes that mothering energy from me, mm-hmm. but it's not primary for me. The fathering energy is more primary for me. And so that's more what I choose on, you know, subconsciously on purpose to bring into, into the world. So I just want to like have that preface of, um, of that. I do think you mentioned the caregiving aspects of that mother that I think, you know, even in, like I just described, my mom was the one that stayed home. My dad did not. I had more emotional, uh, relational connection opportunity and therefore connected more with my mom in that sense of building an attachment. I didn't have that with my dad. Uh, but I just think that there's some aspect of what does it look like for us to equalize that from both and mm-hmm. both that father and both and that mother. And, and the reality is, I mean, you mentioned some, some cultural things, some social things. I think we're starting to emerge out of some of those cultural things that that are very, I'm just going to speak very stereotypically, right? That, that I've, and I hear this a lot in even the counseling room, like men don't have as many emotions as women do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, dad is, you know, boys don't cry. Uh, man up. Like those kind of, that, that cultural stereotypical socialized aspect of what does it mean uh, in, the, in the shaping influences of that fathering energy it actually shapes that fathering energy to be in a certain direction that mm-hmm. I think has actually caused a lot of harm yes. in our world. And uh, even the government has a, a something called the National uh, Fatherhood Initiative, where they've done a ton of research around the presence or the absence of the father in the home. And... Uh, by and large, there are, you know, there's some causation, there's some correlation, uh, and I'm not going to say which ones are which, but either way, there, where a father is present in the home and brings that fathering energy, there are uh, less teenage pregnancies, there's less drug use, there's higher academic scores, there is uh, more secure attachments, uh, there are, um, you know, just there's less childhood obesity, there's less truancy, like all those kinds of things happen when the father is in the home and uh, and present. And I don't just mean like physically present. I mean, emotionally and relationally present to bring that face as we talk about in attachment theory to bring the face to the child. Mm-hmm. So. My dad was physically present, but I didn't have his face. Yes. Okay. And so I think that when we think about fathering stuff, I think it's so important for us to look at like, what is it actually that he brings or that father energy brings into the home that has been by and large absent for a good, you know, a a good stretch of time. Uh, And what does it look like for us to bring that back? Um, So that is for sure. One of my passions. I really appreciate how you talk about this fathering, mothering energy in a more broad and inclusive way. So we can think about how that might apply to a single parent family or same sex parent Mm -hmm. household. And Mm -hmm. 
you know, thinking about what's needed for that child in the moment, what type of, of energy. And that's why I said my original question of like, how much is this culturally conditioned when we look at the differences between the way fathers and mothers interact with their children and fathers, like I said, tend to be more playful, which is important. And then they also get this like, oh, but you do, you know, get the wrap of, but you just get to have all the fun. Why moms do all the work and the caregiving and you know, is it possible that, you know, then mothers are then tapping into more of that fathering energy, whether that looks like rough and tumble play, which is such a healthy ingredient in attachment, um, or that fathers are able to, um, you know, also bring in more of that nurturing, vulnerable, emotional side that you're talking about. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I really appreciate, I think that that's a, a beautiful way of, of looking at it, this fathering, mothering energy. And I'm also wondering in your own story, since you didn't have that fathering energy, um, you know, what, what is that required of you to kind of bring that side out, um, in your own parenting and in your own work, what have you had to do to, to find that? Yeah. Well, I, I will say I was, uh, I was blessed with several men along the way who, uh, were kind of surrogate fathering me in, in some of the ways that I needed. Um, I didn't get everything that I needed. And so even now as an adult, I continue to surround myself with, with people who can and do bring that to me when I am feeling small or young or, uh, you know, uh, in need of that, I, I can look to these other people who are bringing that. So for me, it was, uh, really an awareness of who are these, who are these people who bring that to me over the course of my life? Uh, I was, you know, I'm very grateful to them. And then also what still lacks for me, and it's never too late to still find that. I think all of us, however old we are, continue to long for that father in our lives, to long for those words, to long for that presence, to long for that face. Uh, I was speaking with a, a good friend of mine a couple of years ago, and he's in his seventies. His father was in his nineties and his, you know, his father passed away and they're in the hospital room. My 70 year old friend was still saying, Hey dad, I need to hear you say some words. And I love that 70 year old who was vulnerable, vulnerable enough with his own father. And then with me to tell me the story mm -hmm. to say, hey, I still long for that from you. So uh, for me, it's been, I'm gathering around me, people who can offer that to me. And then also really, um, uh, you know, in, in kind of interpersonal neurobiology, there is this this remembered attunement is what it's called. And this is where you have received somewhere in your past, a person uh, that has offered to you that level of kind of connection, awareness, tuning into your heart attachment, if you will. Uh, and even if it's, you know, last week, last month, 10 years ago, the rem the memory of that when you when you contemplate that when you remember you call that forth to the desktop of your mind it still can offer you the food that your soul needs 
in that kind of space. So when you remember words that you did receive from, you know, a, a college mentor or a high school mentor, or, you know, who spoke at your wedding or whatever that is, you can, you can still bring those out and, and continue to chew on the food of what they are for the soul uh, that you have to, that you still long for those mm-hmm. things. So that's what I've done. You ask, what have I done? Uh, and I, I'm going to say, I have done that and I'm still doing that. Yes. It's always a work in progress, but that is a resource that you just described and already, a, a, I think a practical takeaway for our listeners and viewers of, you know, what are those resources we can call upon within our own stories that can serve us in this, in this present moment. And for, you know, some people may have a hard time finding those resources in their stories too. And so I think you also speak to, you know, it takes a community. So who, who do you have in your life or who do you need to find in your life? And then sometimes that may also be a a therapist or, or, or somebody that you are working with professionally to offer that level of attunement Mm -hmm. that can help you kind of lean into your story and do some of that reparative work. Oh yes. And I love that word reparative because, because it is reparative. It does mm-hmm. heal, does move yeah. you forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talked about sometimes the way that fathering energy shows up might be more kind of restricted in terms of emotional availability mm-hmm. and vulnerability. And so I'm wondering how do you work with fathers to help bring that side out? Speaking of, you know, therapists or having yeah. that narrative <laughs> relationship, what are some things you do with, with fathers or fathering energy? Oh, well, I, I think it's, uh, a couple things. I don't know if I'm going to hit on all of them, but a couple things come to mind. One is I think all of us need first to be invited into that space ourselves. Uh, so almost everything that I do um, it with regard to this fathering stuff is I invite people into experiences that are playful, uh, that push the edge that are, uh, you know, kind of pushing the comfort zone a little bit. And maybe that's, you know, you and I both live here in Colorado. And so it's, a, you know, it's, it's taking people out into the wilderness. It's going white water rafting. It's doing ATVs. It's, uh, it's all those kinds of experiences, uh, that really, I think all of us just want to play and all of us, you know, if, if I were to summarize what I mean by fathering energy and mothering energy, the, the thing that I love is metaphors, right? So mothering energy, when you think about a mother with a child, the mother takes the child and holds that child, uh, like to her chest into, into herself, the father either holds the child on the hip or on the back. Mm-hmm. And, and that piece feels like we all just want to be on, you know, somebody else to take us on a piggyback ride. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and, I, and, and so I want to invite people into those spaces. Uh, so we do that very intentionally. That only is in service of getting into the more vulnerable spaces on the inside. And so I like to talk about that fathering energy being this, uh, and, and also mothering energy uh, in a slightly different way, but that there's the fathering energy brings both strength and tenderness. And there might be just a little bit more leaning into that strength. And the mothering energy is strength and tenderness. And it's just a little bit more leaning into the tenderness. Um, both are, are equal, both have both of those things. And, and at different points, you know, we talk about mama bear, like there is some, some strength that comes out of that mama bear sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. uh, it is that 
that shift of, uh, of looking at men, like, what does it look like for you to bring your strength that doesn't default into power? And what does it look like for you to bring your tenderness that doesn't fall into weakness? And mm-hmm. so, um, for both men and women, but like, like guys, what does it look like to bring that energy forth and still have it moderated and modulated by a, a really strong tenderness? Um, mm-hmm. It's inviting us into our stories of vulnerability. It's inviting us into uh, an awareness of both our bodies, like some real body awareness. Like, what are you feeling? Uh, some mindfulness exercises, like what is going on inside of you? Where do you hold the stories that kind of live within your body? How does your body hold those? Some awareness of that, some talking about that. Let me help you give you some words, some vocabulary, because I mean, when you think about it, how back to the general stereotypical socialization and culturalization of boys, uh, it is like, there's a very limited vocabulary. It's not that boys don't have words it's just that you know to say it's just that they don't have the vocabulary to say often so we need to do some some training uh for Mm -hmm. and even to get some vocabulary so there's that and then also the final thing i'll say is training men uh how to have the postures of uh what i call awareness curiosity and kindness the posture of awareness what do you notice Versus what do you need to say? What do you mm-hmm. notice happening with the other person? Because again, I think a lot of socialization is for boys. It's like, you've got to be the one to have to say something versus what does it look like for you to listen and become aware of what is happening? Curiosity is not moving towards judgment or sharing your own story or, you know, oh, that happened to me too. Like that kind of stuff. But having curiosity to really pull out more of not the information, but more of the person, more of their experience, more of what's happened for them and in them. Uh, tell me more about what that was like for you, not tell me more of the the facts and details of the story. Uh, and then kindness, I think actually, back to my original thought, was kindness is actually the combination of strength and tenderness. Mm. Kindness is where it shows up and like, I will, I will be here strongly present with you. And I will also be extremely gentle with you. Those that's kindness. It's not nice. And I think we have this Mr. Nice guy and, you know, Mm -hmm. polite and all those, those are, those are fine, but I think they're pretty inept at actually like bringing forth the kind of attachments that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Really what you described is being that secure base, finding that balance of helping the child, you know, go out and explore and then also come back in with, you know, that need for co-regulation or just being seen and being able to hold all of, all of that in a way that really meets the child's needs. And, I love what you offered in terms of that awareness, curiosity, and kindness. And I think that so much of what I'm hearing you also say is like, we have to do that with ourselves first. So building that awareness and curiosity about our own story in a way that doesn't bring up all that shame. Is there more you could say about that, Chris? Around shame? Sure. (laughs) Goodness. Well, that's a whole category and a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, uh, so for me, uh, shame is, uh, is the, is part of the human experience. 
And it invites us to withdraw. It invites us to hide. It invites us into isolation. And then it actually also invites us to another thing, which I will call contempt. It will invite us into like a hatred, a contempt for uh, who I am or what I bring and or another, you know, other centered contempt for you because you made me feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we, when we talk about shame, that's where curiosity is. We both get to be here in whatever we are mm-hmm. and what's ever happening for you right now. And what's ever happening for me, we get to be two humans in the same space and I'm not bringing judgment. I'm not bringing, uh, any of my own conclusions. I'm not bringing any of my own aggression. I don't have my own opinions about what you should or shouldn't do. Like there's none of that, that curiosity actually, uh, works against, it works against shame. And I actually think that kindness is the greatest antidote to shame, mm-hmm. um, back to the interpersonal neurobiology that when we experience shame, uh, the thing that we see literally neurologically growing new neurons is that attunement and kindness that leads us into the place of change uh, of how we are. So uh, kindness disrupts shame. If there is anything that disrupts shame, it is that it is that kindness. So lots more I could say about that, but yeah, shame I think is, is loaded and is just cloaked over all of our stories unless mm-hmm. until we begin to do the hard work of cultivating an awareness of our own self, like you said, a cultivation of our own curiosity towards ourself, a cultivation of kindness towards ourself, which then avails us to be present and available to our children, our community, our, our partners, our, you know, our friends. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I like that reminder of this antidote to shame being kindness, which I think you could also use the word compassion. Uh-huh as a way to meet ourselves and our parenting and caregiving in a way that when we feel that, that shame and we we become aware of that, that we can meet that then with something different. And like you said, then that changes those neural pathways and, and opens us up then to how do I parent and what do I want to bring with me from, from my story and what do I want to change or leave behind? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of my favorite authors, his name is Kurt Thompson. Um, he says that, uh, that the number one variable for a parent to help their child develop a secure attachment is their own work on their own story. Mm-hmm. That's the number one variable. And that's yes. so hopeful to me. That's so hopeful because I can actually do that work. And right. And I, we all can do that work. We can't control what our child is going to do. We can't make them be who we want them to be. We can, you know, but it, but I can do this. I can work on that one variable, the largest variable in the equation of developing secure attachment in my child. I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's very synonymous with what we know about the adult attachment interview. And we had Kurt on the podcast a while back too. Huh? So our listeners and viewers may want to want to check that out. And it is, it's empowering and scary. (laughs) This is is a lot of responsibility, but there's something that I can do about it. And there's so much that you're doing about it in your work that is 
really inspiring. So I would love for you to talk more about the work that you're doing and the offerings that you have because mm-hmm. they're they're you just got some really cool stuff going on. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'll talk about two different entities, if you will. One is called Restory Counseling. It's our counseling practice that that I founded um, and now lead, and it is. Uh, a collection of counselors, spiritual directors, story work coaches, uh, pastoral counselors, all that, that we work together. We're based out of Fort Collins, Colorado, but we are spread across the country uh, and do work with people both personally and virtually. So that's one entity. In in the, the fathering space, uh, I have another organization I started called Restoration Project. And uh, what we do is we create uh, both resources and experiences to help to help fathers uh, orient themselves to the journey of what does it mean for fatherhood? What does it mean for you to do some of your own work? Uh, so that's why I say we have some resources that are your, you know, do your own work. Father, like that's going to be uh, important for you so that you can bring yourself to your child. But then we create experiences for fathers and their kids, both, you know, sons and daughters uh, along the way that are uh, outdoor experiences. Uh, We take them into the wilderness. Uh, I just literally got back a couple of weeks ago from taking fathers and older children um, to Kenya, where we got to spend a couple of weeks where our our goal was as these older children are getting ready to launch out, out of the home to kind of work on solidifying that attachment between the father and the child. And then also to open the eyes of the, of the child. And I'm talking, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. So they're not really kids anymore, but, but our children, my 17 year old went with me um, and uh, to open their eyes to the world. And like, what does it look like? for for you to experience the world so that that's one thing but we do some backpack trips we do canoe trips we do weekend camping we do week-long camp like those kinds of experiences that we create um for dads as well as then some kits if you will some at-home experiences that that you can do in the you know the luxury of your own time and in your own space uh that will lead you and guide you through some of these exercises i so love that you have these experiences that you offer. I was telling you that before we even started recording, you've got, you've also got three books, right? That people, Uh, people can find on Amazon that I'm sure also great resources on fatherhood and, and doing the work on our own stories. Um, But I love that you also offer these experiences for people to, you know, be in nature. And there's so much going on with that, that I think is healing, you know, you're outside, you're in nature, you're, you're with your children and you, you're, you've got you as a guide, I'm assuming. Um, So can you tell us more about like, you kind of talked about this canoeing and ATV, but are there things more, you know, within those activities or other activities that you do that really, um, are more in- intentional around bonding and attachment. Yes. So if I can go back to the fathering energy and the mothering energy, it feels like the mothering energy has a lot more in that care, a lot more in that nurture, a lot more in that like physicality to that nurturing care, the holding, the caressing, you know, even my mother, as I I said, you know, giving her face in a bedtime story. Not Mm -hmm. that 
not that fathers can't and shouldn't be that. As I said, I think we both have that. But when I think about the fathering energy, the the biggest hunger, and you've probably heard the term father hunger, um, the biggest hunger that I see both in me and in the people that I work with are for the father's words. More than him holding, more than him comforting, it is for his words. And so every single one of the experiences that we lead, uh, there's there's a ton of elements to it. But every single one of them, we are training and guiding that father to prepare for and then deliver to the child a verbal public, and we call it blessing, a verbal public blessing, words of life being offered over and into, over the child and into their lives. Mm. It is not words of advice. It is not words of expectation. It is not words of you know, correction. It is, this is the glorious being that I see who you are. I want to name what that is. And I also want to say, Hey, and I love that. And I'm delighted in that. And I'm delighted in you. And uh, I have a vision for who you are becoming and uh, I'm all in, Mm. I'm all in for that. So become who you are and Mm -hmm. I will be there to stand behind you and with you. So, um, of course, each individual uh, blessing, it sounds very different. It depends on the child. It depends on the father. Some some write it out in a journal and then read it. Some, you know, I, we had one guy that like did a comic book kind of around that. Uh, he was a drawer. He could draw it out. Like it, it, some are spontaneous. All of it, though, is with the intentional movement towards that actual father hunger to hear those words. And, uh, we try to help, help these fathers. Like this is not a one and done thing. Mm -hmm. This is actually one of the most important things. Your superpower, if you will, is how you bring those words of life. That superhero, that superpower becomes a villain when they're absent, those words are absent or they're violent. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. That's where we get the negative words, the, the wounding that comes from a father's words, but we're trying to help guys. Like, what does it look like to bring that life to your child uh, along the way? So that's one element of how we guide fathers through the journey. There's um, very intentional conversations that we help them have. Uh, There's some very intentional uh, play that, that we have not just going backpacking, but we have whole experiences of play that we lead the fathers through, uh, with, with their child, uh, some very tender moments of, uh, some tender and safe, uh, touch, uh, that, that we will help them have if the father and if the child uh, feels safe, uh, to do that. So there's, there's some very specific elements that we kind of architect into the experience along the way. Mm-hmm. Has it ever, backfired or have you had, you know, challenging father child relationships in these experiences? And, and what have you learned sometimes about the individual differences that, that fathers and these, this fathering energy needs along the way? Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's backfired, but you better believe that if you're going to start entering into the realms that we're talking about, that there is going to be, um, confusion, pushback triggers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I wouldn't say that it's backfired, but it certainly has been challenging along the way. Um, I mean, one of the things that is important is that there's, 
um, we have to see these not, I already said this about the blessing, not being one and done. We have to see these events, these experiences as not one and done. There is not, you're going to come on one of these experiences and all will be well afterwards. If it was mm-hmm. not well beforehand, this is not going to fix fix your relationship. Um, it mm-hmm. is to help it, but it won't fix it. So there have been several uh, father, child, and I'm talking like young child all the way to the older teens where they've come in and things have been rough. Uh, there's sure. been betrayal, there's been loss, there's been, uh, some, you know, harshness, uh, you know, some of that absence of words, some of the violent words, like all that has been part of that dynamic between the father and that child. Uh, and it takes a long while to recover, uh, from those. And it's not going to happen in the context of these three, five, you know, three days, five days, 10 days that we, that we take people for. However, what I have seen and, and, um, and this is, I don't have statistics on this, but I'm going to just go ahead and say it like 95 to hundred percent of the time, there is at least a tick in movement. There's, right. a, there's a tick in movement because when you can attend or attune even a little bit, there is movement towards that more secure attachment and it might not finish the job, but it certainly is going to move you along. And one of the things that I love to say is that may it not be said that any child that comes through any of our experiences has not had, even for a moment, the face of their father. Mm. So, and that has happened every single time. So, Mm. uh, yeah, can't get into the realms that we're talking about without some level of severe difficulty for sure. Yes. Yeah. It's going to get messy. I would, ex- I would expect that. And it makes me think about readiness for that experience. And if that's something that mm-hmm. you kind of screen for, or is it like, you know, we let's have the experience and whatever comes up, comes up. Yeah. And then maybe that will reveal just some additional work or supports or resources that that this fathering energy needs in its journey. Yeah, I would say more the second because I yeah. you know I, I don't want people to have to do the work before they can do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, you know, and then there's deeper levels. Like we take people deeper. So at least for that initial like come join, absolutely. Come where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as you say yes and there is consent and willingness from your child, come along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love that you're creating these opportunities for parents and children. It's really awesome. Is there, is there anything else you want to say about the, the, your resources or just other resources that that fathering energy might need in its healing and and development? Oh, sure. Well, I'll, I'll highlight, you mentioned a couple of the books. I'll highlight uh, a book that I have and a book that my wife has. So one of the books is called the man maker project. And this is, uh, there's a whole history to uh, rites of passage and how we don't have them in our society as much as I think we need them in our society. And I don't mean anything like super strict or any kind of craziness, right? Like, but, but cultures across time throughout history have had some kind of rite of passage that is very intentionally father-driven uh, and then socially connected uh, to that family's social network. Uh, I think we've lost that. 
And um, one of the, so the man maker project book is all about a father having that intentionality of what does it look like for me to do something with regard to specifically my son. And, and I say that because uh, a, a father has walked the road that the son then is going to walk. I can have intentionality with my daughters for sure and have, and I'll talk about that in a second, but I've not walked that journey. So I can't take them on that. Uh, on that in the same way, but I have walked the journey into, uh, you know, that my son is going to walk. So really being intentional about that. My wife wrote a book also then about the intentional journey for a mother and a daughter and what that looks like. And then we both talk about kind of the crossovers. What does it mean for a father with a daughter? And what does it look like for a mother with a son? All that mothering and fathering energy, what does it look like? Different and needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that process. So uh, my book is called Manmaker Project. My wife's book is called A Voice Becoming. Uh, her name is Beth Bruno. So you can find that also on Amazon. Um, so those are two. And, and then the final thing that I'll say is that um, I'm now in my second half of life. And I think it's so, so important, whether you're just starting out in this journey of fathering or you're kind of well along the way, you can't take someone further than you yourself have not gone back to your own personal work. And so uh, a book that just came out last year is called Sage. And that is about an intentional passage. uh, If the first passage is from boy to man, the second passage is from man to sage. And we don't talk about that hardly at all. Uh, And that was what that book is about. What does it look like for me to go into my second half of life with intention and purpose and to do some of that healing work so that that fathering energy can continue even after my children are out of the home, even after, you know, even after my influence now changes, it is a very different space. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd highlight those, those kinds of resources for sure. Yeah. Those sound like great resources and, and also to name how you've done so beautifully with the mothering and fathering energy that the terms around gender are still very open in terms of what that looks like in each individual child. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and how we foster, you know, their, their own identity and, and what that child may, may be needing and, and breaking out of some of those gender norms and also still recognizing the need for this distinct fathering and mothering energy and the distinct needs that sons and daughters have is, is that yes. a good way of and, and back to what I was saying in the blessing, like this is the person that I see you becoming and I want yeah. to honor that and bless that, um, and give words that fathering energy to who you are right before me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So what advice would you have for new fathers, old fathers, you know, if you could give one or two things of advice sure. well, or, and to that fathering energy, what would it be? I think uh, they're kind of related. One is uh, for the younger, younger crowd, it is never too early. It's never too early to start your own journey. What is it like for you to actually own this fathering energy that lives within you? What does it look like for you to cultivate that, name it, find places that are wounded and may need to be, you know, attend, attended to, uh, that kind of stuff, so that you are the most whole self that you are to bring that fathering energy forward. Um, 
And that's, that's the work that we're talking about. Yeah, that's where you would maybe need to meet with a therapist or meet with a counselor or meet with, meet with somebody who's kind of gifted in, in guiding you in that journey, uh, reading resources and all that stuff. So it's never too early to start that. Um, I love, I had one, uh, one client several years ago who was, uh, 21 and he was not even dating someone yet. Uh, but he's like, I know that I have some things in my life that I want to work on so that I can be my full self to bring both to my partner and then to, uh, you know, my eventual children. I was like, I love that. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's never too early. And then on the flip side, it's never too late, Mm -hmm. never too late. Even if you have, like, like I said, you know, you're 90 and you have a 70 year old son. It is never too late. You have a, you know, a a 70 year old daughter, you have, it's never too late to do some of this work, this reparative work of re, you know, going back over some of your own story, going back over where you have been, what you have offered, what you have not to do the work of uh, attaching to the people in your life uh, and to yourself and also to the people in your life. So it's never too late. I have fathers who will show up and they're like, well, my, you know, my daughter is 30. Can I do something with you? And I'm like, absolutely. Like, let's figure out what that looks like. So uh, it's never too early. It's never too late. Mm. That's a beautiful note to start to wrap up our conversation on. And my, my final question for you is going to be, what do you then envision for a world of, of, fathering energy. And you kind of touched on that already, but is there more you would like to say? Oh, you know, I, I envision a world where that hunger, that father hunger is actually fed to satiation. Mm. Yes. Um, Because there's another term and we don't have time to get into it now, but there's another term that is the father wound. And father hunger and father wound is different. Uh, father hunger is something that we all have, as we talked about today. Mm-hmm. Father wound is when that father hunger is not fed. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to see a world where the father hunger is continually satiated and that we're not then tipping into the spaces of father wound. Yes. Right on. I will join you in that, that vision. And we will be sure to link your your websites and, and books and all of that in our show notes because they're great resources and you have some really cool free resources that are available that have a lot of practical guidance and, and reflections in them too that I, I know our audience will be interested in. And you know, I hope that that they can have some of these experiences that you are intentionally creating, whether that's with you or in their own ways. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing. So inspiring. And I look forward to when our paths can cross again. Thank you so much, Chris. Awesome. Well, it's been great to be with you today. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. And join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. For additional resources and training opportunities, visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of attachment theory. Attachment Theory.